Hey everybody, welcome to another episode. I am Michael Petro, and joining me on the virtual living room that is Zoom is Gia Wirtz. Gia Wirtz and I found each other on the internet, as you do these days, and Gia's got a really cool story. Gia went from fashion to film and made this unbelievable short documentary for her first film about wrongful convictions and the justice system in America and being tried. A gentleman named Jeffrey Deskovic, to be accurate. Jeffrey was tried and convicted of rape and murder of one of his classmates. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he didn't do it. He was wrongfully convicted and spent the better part of his life, young life, in prison. And that's the story of her short documentary. And it's absolutely fucking fantastic. Uh, so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about her doc. We're talking about true crime, our obsession with it. Uh, her story starts with the, you may have heard this little podcast called Serial. Um, that's her whole inspiration. Adnan's, Adnan's story. Uh, she goes into some really good detail about how that was involved in making her decision to want to get in the true crime uh, and watching the HBO documentary crew do the thing. Uh, so that's the, that's what you're going to listen to today. She's pretty fucking cool and interesting and was a blast as a guest. Gia, again, thank you so much. Uh, super. You've, you've got a seat at the table, as I, as I said. <laughs> Anyways, so that's the show for you guys today. Uh, more stuff about her, please. I implore you to go to her website. Uh, she's won a ton of awards for this film already. There's a feature in the works. Uh, it's only available in America at the moment. I'm sure you guys are techie nerds like me and can figure out how to stream it anyway, but it's on Amazon Prime in America only. She's working on getting it into Canada right now. Uh, you can't rush greatness. So, yeah, therealdebaters.ca. At this point, all of you fans who've listened to me do this before, I don't care if you skip. Go right ahead. You know this speech. But if you're new and you haven't yet heard me say it, just listen to me once. That's all I ask, okay? So, therealdebaters.ca. That's everything us. Just go there. You can shop there. You can peruse what we've written about there. You can listen to the show there, how to subscribe to the show. It's a one-stop shop. There's also shopping there, you can buy skateboard decks or stickers or T-shirts with all of our shit on it, okay? There's that, too. If you want to donate to our show, if you want to donate to the cause that is The Real Debaters, uh, we put that money back into production, try to make this better for you, right? So we want to give you something for your donation. Uh, it's not much. It's pocket change, really. Uh, I wouldn't ask for anything more because it's just crazy. It's a tiered system. You can be involved in it. You can be involved in the production of the show at some point. You can dedicate an episode to somebody if you want. Uh, why you'd want to do that, I don't know, but we want to give you something for your donation is the point. So realdebaters.ca, that is everything us. Real Debaters online, uh, at Real Debaters, R-E-E-L for all the spelling, and the Real Debaters at gmail.com. I got nothing else. Seriously, it's just Gia. I will let Gia narrate how this whole thing came about. It's a crazy fucking, it's a crazy story. Jeffrey, again, man, you're tough as nails dude and uh i hope to learn more about you in the future with her feature i give you geowarts i will give the real and you enjoy the show let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel here is a motion picture film a thousand feet sixteen thousand separate photographs welcome everyone Joining me in a virtual living room called Zoom is Gia Wirtz. Gia Wirtz, uh, we found each other online. She found me, and I'm so happy that she did because she has a documentary film that she made called Conviction. I'm right about that, right? You are. Perfect. Okay. I, this is the stuff I always fuck up. So uh, <laughs> titled Conviction, and it is the story 
of a wrongful conviction. I did, I'm not going to get Jeffrey's last name right. So what's Jeffrey's last name, Gia? Deskovic. Deskovic. I should. I'm Ukrainian. That's very Eastern European. <laughs> so it's the story of a wrongful conviction of just uh, of of oh, it's just Jeffrey right now. Deskov Jeffrey Deskovic, and how he was wrongfully accused of rape and murder, and was imprisoned for 16 years. And you sent me an email. And you were like, I'd like to come on your show. And I was like, of course, I want to have you on my show. And I watched the movie and I'm blown away and I want to get into talking about that. But I first, you, you have a very interesting backstory and I want to kind of start with where you got into film, but what you did before, like you were, you were strictly fashion before if research serves to be correct. Is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I was in the fashion industry more on the business operations side for almost 20 years Gee. before switching careers. <laughs> So like, were you, were you, like, are you bored? Were you not challenged? Were you, if you always had a film side that you wanted to kind of, you know, look into what was, what was, what moved you? Almost all of the above. I got bored. So when I was in my twenties, I started working in the fashion industry at like 18 and I was, I thought I hit the jackpot. Cause I was like, I would do this for free and I'm getting paid a good salary to do this. Like, this is amazing. And I thought it was you know, so fun and sure. I've always loved clothes. And then, um, in my thirties, it became really unfulfilling. And the more further along I got in the industry, the more, I hate to say, but I met personalities and people that I didn't want to be around for one. And then for two, I just, you know, you get older and you start caring more about the world and things around you. And I thought, you know, what am I contributing by designing clothes or selling clothes or helping businesses sell more clothes? It just wasn't fulfilling. And I wanted to do something else. And uh, the other aspect was I'd always been passionate about wrongful convictions. When I was like 20 years old, I read Reuben Carter's book, The 16th Round. And that just, that book just kind of, just pierced through me. It stuck with me my whole life. I just couldn't believe his story and the wrongful conviction and an innocent person. That would be a Zoom lag, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there she is. She's back. That's okay. I was talking to myself, so it's perfectly fine. So you were saying you saw you read Ruben's book. Is that correct? Yeah, I read Ruben Carter's book, The Sixteenth Round, okay. and the book was just so. Uh, so it was hard to read. It was such of this, you know human interest story it was like he what everything he went through was just so horrific and to imagine an innocent person going through that was it was I was beside myself and so it always just stuck with me and it would then that made me really passionate about wrongful convictions and I always kind of wanted to do something in that field yeah it I, you've seen the movie now obviously I'm guessing it, it, hurricane yeah Oh yeah, of yeah, course. Probably more than once now that you read the and I, you read the book and then it, you get the images and it becomes visceral once you get the movie. Um, yeah, that will I've that's always been one of those great emotional triumph like hero's journey stories that sucks that the way it went down for him, but nonetheless, it's still a hero's journey because he came out on the back end, became an advocate, just like Jeffrey has in, in your film. Um so why tackle documentaries right off the hop? Was it just something that like with what you're saying, you wanted to, you wanted fulfillment and documentary is a great way to blow the lid off something or expose something that, was that a great way to maybe phrase it? Yeah, you know, it wasn't even documentaries right away. I was for a few years, I was racking my brain trying to figure out what to do. I actually 
uh, even had a conversation with Jeff at one point saying, do you think I should start a podcast? Do you think I should go to law school? Like what? I was like, from somebody who knows it from the other side, what would be most helpful, you know, to people like you, people who've been through what you've been through. And it was a very interesting conversation because Jeff was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't think podcasts would be the right way to go because gaining an audience is a tough thing to do. And so you'd be working a long time before you start making any kind of impact. It's just really interesting. And then what happened, it actually all started with a podcast. I heard Serial, the podcast. Yes. yes. And I we all have. Yeah, right. Everybody has. And I felt the same way I felt when I had read the Reuben Carter book. I was just like, this can't, how can this be happening again? You know, how is this kid in jail? He, I was sure he's innocent. And so after finishing it, I wrote a quick, I got online. I researched a bunch of stuff. Um, I read Adnan Syed, the subject of serial. I read the court documents like front to back from his mistrial and his second trial when he was convicted. And, and then I got on the computer and I found uh, Rabia's email. She's the one who was the advocate for Adnan who brought the story to Serial. And I shot her an email and I said, I wanna help, what can I do? Even if it's just going through documents, like, you know, I'm, I'm here for it. And I never heard back from her, but of course, Serial just blew up after that. And I'm sure yeah, she got a million, yeah, a million emails. Um, and so then I thought, you know, I don't need to talk to his family and friends in order to help. I can just do something on my own. And so I organized a fundraiser in New York City with a friend of mine to donate all of the funds to a non-legal defense fund. And that was the first kind of, you know, toe in the water that I got yeah. into this whole thing. And when I was planning that fundraiser, my friend said, I, we were looking for a speaker. And she said, I know a guy who has a very similar story to Adnan and his name is Jeff. Do you want me to introduce you to him? And I said, yes. And she introduced me to Jeff. That's how we first met. And then I did that fundraiser for Adnan. And we, you know, we were able to raise a few thousand dollars in this one night. We did this little concert. It was like local bands and stuff <coughs> and we sold. Uh, I, I created the free Adnan t-shirts because I owned a fashion company. And so sure. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I think we were the ones who first created those. And, uh, and then, anyways we raised a few thousand dollars we donated it and in the process we became uh, close with the family and so I've known Adnan's family now for a handful of years and wow they're just some of the most wonderful people I've ever met they're just so generous and I don't even know how they can be in the mindset that they are they're just wonderful humans really? and yeah and then I got to know them and that's what really got me thinking I want to do more than just donate money or my time and what can I do and then fast forward to a couple of years ago or a few years ago, I was at Adnan's post-conviction hearing with his family wow. and they, you know, that's when his conviction got overturned and there was a camera crew there and they were filming. You were and in the room when that got overturned? Say that again. I said you were in the room when that got overturned? Well, the decision came later because the judge, oh, okay. you know, yeah, Justice yeah. So not instant, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't know that before now, you know that now. <laughs> yeah, I was there for the case for the court case. The duration of the court case was a few wow. days long. And that's a whole nother story. I could talk to you for an hour about that alone. It was so bizarre. And the we'll thing I saw in there, it made me not want to be a lawyer. That's like, that is what cemented me not wanting to be a lawyer was being in that room because it was so absurd, the stuff that I saw happen in there. But um you know, we can definitely come back to that. But I saw this, there was a camera crew there and they were filming and it was like three people, a camera guy, I think an audio person maybe, and a producer. And the Robbie ended up telling us, you know, they're filming a documentary for HBO. Uh, don't say anything because it's not public knowledge yet, but you know, you guys might be on camera here or there, whatever. And so that's how I learned that that's what was going on. And me being completely naive, knowing nothing about the film industry at all, 
<laughs> but I did have a 20 year background in photography and I knew my way around the camera. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so I went home and I was like, you know what, that is what would reach a lot of people making a murder had just, you know, come out and it been huge and Jinx was huge and amazing oh, and I loved it. Oh, yeah. I was so, and like at the end when he's sitting there he's just talking to himself and he's like, I, I did it oh. with it. And you're like, motherfucker, you're hot mic. I know I was, I was, I could not believe it. I was like, I just, no, nobody could. That's what made the whole documentary was totally. that last totally. scene, you know? Um, and there's, have you read about that last scene? You know how like a associate, like a producer or audio person found that clip way later? Yeah. You know, they had it. It Well, yeah. Cause HBO got grilled. I heard for le having maybe evidence and not producing it in a timely fashion and and then like they kind of they may have used that to trump up you know interest in the documentary like i've heard uh, both sides i've heard a couple different things i don't know what's true what, what are you talking about um well i read about and actually i know somebody who's told me about this too um they said that the just it's just in the filming process there's so much audio and you know you're always mic'd and so yeah. i guess that segment that last scene where he's mic'd and he confesses basically they didn't know they had it because they had taken their headphones off and everything and they packed up their stuff and so only after like an associate some somebody like somebody that you know is a like a lower role in the filmmaking process was just going through all the audio and they found it and I, I just can't even imagine having that kind of footage and not knowing you're sitting on it in just the filmmaking process, you know? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, yeah, that serves me right for listening to the rumor train. Um, <laughs> like, that's nuts. Like, yeah, some some low-end AP who's just like, hey, we need to get through this audio. You go in that room all weekend and figure it out. Um, and then exactly. ha having just, he's like, uh, sir, I, I may have cracked the case. <laughs> Exactly. I was like, that's, that's just amazing. And it made the entire documentary. So, I mean, that's huge, but anyways, yeah. uh, long story short, I, I came home after that and I was like, this is what could reach a larger audience. Everyone's interested in, you know, everyone's interested in TV and documentaries. Well, a lot of people are, there's a huge true crime following, obviously. And just kind of light bulb went off. I was like, this is what I could do. And it's something I would enjoy. And it's something that would reach a larger audience. And so I went home, talked it over with my husband, he might've thought I was a little bit crazy. And then I enrolled into New York Film Academy and you know, we decided we would just do it. And he's helped me on the project all along too. And it, it was, it's been great. It's been a great, great experience ever since. That's awesome that you were like, I just don't wanna do this anymore. So I'm gonna do this, cause I wanna do that. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm just gonna go to New York Film Academy because that's what you do. And you come home and tell your husband, I'm just, we're just gonna make a documentary, honey. Like you, you were just fucking do it. and everybody who's ever made something that me and you both love say the same thing just go do it uh-huh for sure for right. sure i mean you just have to start it's like the first steps you just have to take action so there's been so many things for myself too and for most people you have so many ideas and they just stay ideas in your head and you never take the action and the first steps to actually start and that's all you really have to do it all starts to snowball once you actually start you know yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you because I was like, let's do a podcast. And then I'm in Long and McQuaid with, you know, a really big bill. And I'm like, how'd I get here? <laughs> like, there was a lot of things that I just kind of skipped because I don't know. And now I'm here. So no, I, I, I appreciate that. I like the Maverick, right? You're, you're, that's the Steven Spielberg thing. Just go do it, figure it out. And then hopefully it sticks and someone pays you lots of money for it. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so it's not about the money. It's about the art, but fuck, get paid for something that you're good at and that you enjoy doing. That's, that's, the, that's the dream. For 
for sure. So you've, you've, you've touched on the making the murderer and the, and the, and the jinx and the lit, like the litany of other crime documentaries that are coming out. Uh, just a question before we dig into Jeffrey in the movie, what is it that draws people in, in your opinion to these? Because I've never, I was never a person and I watched the Cecil hotel documentary last week. And now I'm like, I just stick it in my fucking veins. I can't get enough of this true crime story that a netflix is i don't know if they have a machine in the back that they just push documentary and then out comes something <laughs> because it's the same look it's the same feel it's comforting right like like uh, making a murderer looks like night stalker and night stalker looks like cecil hotel and cecil hotel looks like evil genius right like and and, and there's this thing to it so what is it besides the netflix algorithm that draws people to true crime now now that you've made a movie and you've immersed yourself in that genre <laughs> Sorry, Michael. Now my toddler has just joined us. That's fine. My cat, wanted, my, my cat wanted to go piss, so I had to open the door. So that's fine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let me get them out of here. Sure. Yeah. No, that's cool. <laughs> Sorry. Let her come on. No, tell her to come say hello. <laughs> um, Jackson. Okay. I think my husband wrangled them out of here. And now he's <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> that's fine. No, that's fine. Jackson would have been our first child on the show. That was amazing. <laughs> gonna let him say hi but no he's just gonna cry about it this, um, this is what you do when you're at home doing your craft <laughs> yeah it, oh exactly you should see how i edited my film literally he was one and it would be like a one-year-old just on the other side of my laptop screaming at the top of his lungs and that is how i edited the entire documentary and then one time he took chicken noodle soup and poured it all over my macbook and then i had to go buy a new computer in the middle of making this film if i could have made a documentary about making a documentary with a one-year-old at home it would have been hilarious <laughs> the, Man the mandalorian shit where for every for everything you do you make a behind the scenes you <laughs> with a fucking giant mac top mac macbook bill and a kid in one hand and this just face of desperation <laughs> Exactly. All the balance. Oh my goodness. Um, yes, back to your question. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a couple of things. I think that people, and you know, I've actually and read a lot about this too, especially specifically about women, which is very interesting. But I think one, people are very, it's almost like a shock factor because you can't believe that things happened in real life. So there's that aspect of it that gets people, you know, hooked on true crime. And then the other side is there's so many armchair detectives sitting at home, you know, myself included, who are like, yeah, of course, right? I can solve this. And what I'm gonna go online, I'm gonna Google everything and I'm gonna I'm in, research. I'm in the first, I'm in the first like one of five episodes and I'm like, I got it. I got it. I shouldn't be a salesman. I need to fucking be a be a true crime detective. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's so funny. I, but I think that's what it is. And then it's really interesting. I actually did a little research on this because I, I did a segment for The List, the TV show yeah, I saw, um, in the yeah. States. Yeah, about women and why women are so fascinated with uh, true crime. I thought that was really cool. Interesting. It is cool. What Go a little bit more into that because people obviously won't know unless they go to your website. So I'd rather hear, have them hear, hear you here. So what is it really like? What was, there was a couple statistics. I think there was. Yeah. Oh God. The statistics. I'm not, I'm so bad. That's I'm fine. If you don't have them handy. Out. I don't either. Yeah. 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 I forget, I forget what it is, but um, yeah, I'd have to look it up, but it's really interesting because women watch, I think 85% of viewers and 75 to 85% of viewers and listeners of podcasts of true crime are women. So let me rephrase that. True crime viewers and listeners are 85% female, which is 
very, very interesting. And so there's a lot of research done about why this is. And there's a few reasons. One is because women are usually the victims of these crimes. And so they have just more of an interest in learning what the hell happened. And when they do watch this stuff, they watch it for a few reasons. They watch it to learn um, escape tactics that worked. Like how did other women get out of this situation? And maybe I can learn something from this. Yeah. And it's so funny because the reason I first read a New York Times article that talked about this and I had often wondered why I was, I've been addicted to true crime my entire life and I'm also terrified of it and I can't sleep at night. And I wondered why do I like it so much? And then I read this New York Times article and it was talking about this and how everything it said, I was like, this is me. Like they're talking about me. I am the one who watches it to see, you know, if this ever happens, what can you do to escape? You know, what have other women done to escape? Um, what can you avoid? Like what, like, you know, That's dark a, parking lots and things. Gia, not- I 100% sympathize because when I watch an Avengers movie, I'm trying to figure out how to be more like Tony Stark. So I, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that makes sense though. I mean, and like every time you see one, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's sadly the same blueprint. Obviously there's a fabric that these men, these troubled and disturbed men are cut from. And it usually yes. lies somewhere in the Middle East of America. <laughs> I don't know, like mid- Midwest, sorry. Midwest, tall, six foot six, white male, right? Like that that whole Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill kind of like, not mold, but just like from that tree, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it's always some, a girl who, who, or woman who couldn't, you know, get herself out of the situation. So I would totally understand how that's reading the playbook, so to speak and kind of giving yourself a little bit of an edge, right? Because you're like, I'm going to read up on this shit so it doesn't happen to me in real life. For sure. Absolutely. And a lot of it just sticks with you. And it's also like women won't ever since the, was a Central Park jogger? Yes. Ever since I heard that story in like the 80s, I never jogged in a park. Like We clearly internalize these things and then we we act on them by not putting ourselves in these dangerous, you know, scenarios and situations. That's that's crazy. I love, I, I think that's very very interesting i hate that that's why you have to do it but yes i think it's too. very interesting as to why you would be so so glued into it okay all right it um, is so interesting i want to talk about the movie because that is why you were here and and i want to talk about as much about it because a the story is important and b nobody in canada can see it yet unless you unless that's that's changing hopefully in the near future but we, we can talk about that later um I, I do want to get a little bit into jeffrey and, and and how you kind of crack this whole story so first of all um give a little backstory on on just jeffrey's case because i i looked at it from a from your filmmaker's perspective i didn't keep a lot of notes on uh on his on the actual case itself i mean i understand it but i uh, i just my book here is light on jeffrey's statistics so um tell people what's his story how did this all happen to him Yeah, Jeff was a 16 year old kid in Peekskill, New York. He was in high school, just like everybody else. And it was a very, very safe town. There was, I think there was no murder, homicide or any major crime for over a decade, if not two decades, I think, uh, which is crazy. And then one day, this girl, Angela Correa, was murdered. She was raped and murdered. And she was a classmate of Jeff's. And so then the detectives came around asking questions to try and obviously solve the case and figure out what's going on. And some of the students, unfortunately, in the questioning with the detective said, you should talk to Jeff only because he's quiet and he's, you know, reserved and maybe a little bit, they said odd or something like that. And that is what turned the detective's attention to Jeff. 
which was the beginning of all the you know horrific situation the circumstances that Jeff had to deal with and uh, what ended up happening is the detective spent months taking Jeff around to the crime scene giving him details and pretty much grooming him over time uh-huh and then and then one day they drove him outside um, his county to a different county and they questioned him in the police station for over seven hours he had no food his parents didn't know where he was he had no lawyer present they he had never drank coffee in his life he was only 16 they gave him a ton of coffee with no food he said he felt super jittery and and just wired and of course he was worried he didn't know what the hell was going on and they coerced a confession out of him you know over that as they, as they somehow we find out more and more that they do it's like i mean i don't i have friends who are police officers and i do not think that that job is easy by any means and you're mm -hmm. very thin margins when it comes to some of these scenarios but at the same time when you talk to somebody because they're quiet yeah I'm, that's not like i mean i remember the one the one bit about his psychological profile and he just fit it yeah. i mean that psychological profile it, it, that fits a lot of people. And for some, like, uh, like uh, there was nobody thinking that for a first time offender, this is a very violent crime. Like the, the jump from a 16 year old student to let's just say like a fully graduated, you know, rapist and murderer. Like there's a, we got, we're, we're missing some steps here, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I hate to say it, but they just, I don't think they wanted to, do the work to they wanted to get the case off their desk rather than do the work to find the right person and that i find so bizarre because they, if you live in this town that was super safe wouldn't you want to get this murderer off the streets just for your own well-being and your family yeah. and your friends i mean it makes no sense to me but it seems that's what occurred because you know you raise a good point because that's the flip side of that it's do it get it done quick because we have such a safe town and now that safety is yeah. property and i mean from a human perspective i I can sympathize with that idea. I don't think it's right, but I can sympathize how you'd be sitting in a situation and you're like, I'm so scared as a police officer in this town that let's just rush it, get it done, get it over with, plug the, plug the dam, so to speak. That is, but someone's life, some 16 year old kid's life is in balance here, man. Like, and, and what I found before I forget my thought, what I, what I, what you mentioned, and I wanted to bring it up. He is such a quiet, gentle person for having, yeah gone through the american prison system i'm not saying in canada we're both canadian ladies and gentlemen um i'm we i'm not pretending that in can i don't know anything about prison i i got arrested for mooning a hooker prostitute that's as much <laughs> as i know about being in trouble with the cops so and i even fell out of the van while it happened just for context my pants around my ankles so it's a funny story like that's so i don't i'm not going to pretend i have an opinion on this but like the American prison system is a business. The Canadian prison system is still like, you know, there for its somewhat general purpose, but he's so like, he's so adjusted. And I don't know if that was be like, what, what is that trait about him? I hope when people can see this, cause there's something I want to talk about at the end that kind of extends your universe of Jeffrey, but um, how, how did he get through that? Like the prison alone, never mind being charged with a crime that you didn't commit in, in his mind, in his heart of hearts, I'm sure he knew that he didn't do it, but the system, that's what blows my mind. Yeah. You know, I don't know how he got through it because as a 16 year old going through an adult max security prison, when you're already a quiet reserved kid. And the other thing about Jeff's story that really just hits me hard is um, at Angela's wake, 
he was at the wake and he was, I guess, crying a lot. And the police took that as a sign that he, cause they already thought he did it. They were already, they already had their, you know, eyes set on him. And so they thought, well, he's crying because he has guilt for what he's done. And, and what gets me about it is he didn't know Angela. Jeff didn't know Angela well at all. They'd had a couple of conversations. He didn't even, they weren't even friends. And so to think about somebody who would be crying at a wake for someone that they knew as an acquaintance barely means that the person's really soft hearted, you know, and it's a yeah. caring person. And so for somebody who's caring, quiet, reserved, soft hearted to go to a max security men's prison at 16 years old I can't even wrap my brain around that I don't know how he survived and you know if you if once you see the film you obviously know that Jeff has just got a lot of heart and a lot of drive huh. obviously you know has the character to get through and achieve a lot and so I guess that's what got him through but it's very interesting to talk to Jeff there's some of the stuff um you know, I'm working on the feature length doc, the hour and a half. Long okay. Yeah. We can story. talk about that now. Cause yeah, I, so, I want to know, so, there's so many little things that you, like you touch on, like you touch on his pen pal and you touch on his advocacy work and you touch on him getting his law degree. Like there's so many things that like have like our little nuggets of like, no more Jeff, more Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to it a lot deeper in the longer version, which I was going to tell you, but what's in a lot of the, what I'm going to tell you now, it will be in there. But what's so interesting about Jeff is that he he tells you you ask him how he got through it he says things like you know when we had um rec time recreation time and they would play sports he's like i had to put my state of mind in like a fantasy world like i would pretend like i was a professional athlete i was a basketball player and i was not in prison and i would put myself in that state of mind so i could enjoy the basketball game and just play you know play hard and and he's like i would pretend that you know the guards were the audience like members or whatever. And, and he had to create these alternative realities so that he could mentally get through this situation. And he always told himself that, I think he said he told himself like, oh, it's just going to be a couple more years till the next appeal. I'll be out. Yeah. He never thought it'll be life, you know? So he kind of had to just keep going for one more year. He'd think, oh, I just got to make it this one more year. And that kept happening. And he just, that's how he kept going and going and going. And, 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 you know, one time, these guys, because in prison, they have this vigilante mentality against people who are committed, who have committed sex crimes. And because they yeah. thought that Jeff was a rapist, they uh, attacked him and they hit his, they hit him in the head from behind with like weight plates from the gym and he almost died. And, and he said, that's happened to him more than once. I, I just, I just can't even imagine everything that he dealt with and how he lived in there. I know, I know briefly understand from movies i'll just preface by saying that <laughs> that you're right the 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 sex crimes in prison specifically with young children and and women do not get you any street cred that's the complete opposite it almost is mm -hmm. because it's like if there's one thing we can all agree on don't do that which is a fucked up moral code but um i they met he mentioned that they passed out his police report in prison Yes. Like that to who? Like to the guards and the other staff, or to no, the other inmates. Fuck that! Why? What is that? Was that a special? Like who? Who's someone feeling extra like sociopathic that day? I mean, I think this kind of stuff. I I don't know, of course, but it sounds like this kind of stuff happens all the time. Like the whole code in prison is a whole nother world, totally different than what we experience every day. Yeah. 
I know we should become, I I think there should be some sort of system in place that makes you feel what this must feel like, or at least push you pretty close to it just for an understanding that prisoners are still people. And sometimes they're not even prisoners, they're wrongfully convicted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy because in the States, um, and I think it's a very conservative number, but the Innocence Project says there's about two to 5% of all prisoners are innocent. That's over 120,000 people. I mean, it's insane. That's like a Dallas Cowboys football game. <laughs> I guess so, if you say so. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just using for scale. <laughs> I don't sports. I'm just- I, don't, I, I know nothing about sports. <laughs> I have a billion dollar stadium, so it must be able to hold a lot of people. <laughs> no, that's my God to know that. And like it, for, all the, for all of our American friends listening right now, you can watch this. You can go to Amazon Prime. It's there. It's ready to stream. Um, so like stop listening to us, come back and listen to us, whatever. But like, this is something that needs eyes and ears and, and attention. And, um, I, I, as a first time filmmaker, how did you feel with taking care of somebody's story? You know, luckily I didn't think about it too, too much. Otherwise I might've psyched myself out, but I did go into it. I, I think the reason, one, a few of the reasons it works, I mean, number one being Jeff, he's so compelling. His story and life is so compelling. Um, from, from the filmmaker side, from my end, I went into it with a very, you know, I want to 100% stick, stick to the facts. It has to be factual. I didn't want anything to be sensationalized. I hate when true crime is sensationalized. It's like what happened is already, crazy enough you don't need to make it any crazier it sometimes drives me insane when i watch films that say they're based on a true story but then they say that certain events have been changed and it's like why why yeah. the story is already crazy <laughs> as it is like you don't need to do this like why somebody taking upon themselves to uh, embellish the story or change details when you could just tell it how it actually occurred and that oh. drives me bananas well like and like it, it, the reason you're making a movie is because it is so crazy like it's crazy enough that it's got enough conflict and you know weird shit that you're like this could be a movie so you don't need to you're right you don't need to change it because it's already crazy enough like yeah you know they what he what person a did to person b does not need to be more gory it's gory who did that the night stalker did that where they used crime scene footage blended with reenactment footage yeah and i was like the reenactment's good enough when you find out what richard ramirez did to people I, the, the crime scene stuff was, was a little, and I'm, I'm a pretty weak stomach. Like I can't, I can't watch a calf birth. So like, I mean, yeah, yeah. that stuff is, is pretty, pretty nuts. But um, I think you did a fantastic, like I, I, I am blown away at how beautiful it looks like cinematically. You did a very good job with your camera work and telling a story and, and getting to the heart of it. Like it is a heartfelt documentary. It's not a sensationalized documentary at all. Like you said, so you steered, incredibly well away from that but like it really is about him and his survival and that's what i found really interesting as opposed to just another wrongful conviction another overturning of a verdict another life back to somewhat normal it's like no we get to know jeffrey was that your intent was to play it from that side instead of hanging out more in you know the the generic tropes you could kind of get away with with making a true crime yeah, that was 100% my intention. I went into it, actually, when I approached Jeff about it, I said, you know, I want to kind of answer a question that I find a lot of people don't answer in these types of films and these in these stories. And it's, it's 
how did you reintegrate into society and how is somebody who's innocent really impacted by something like this by a wrongful conviction and that was what interested jeff in the beginning he said i find that really interesting because actually uh, not many people have asked me about that part of my story and so that's what i found most interesting and that's what i went in um you know the question i went in trying to answer when making the film nobody thinks about what it must be like for a wrongfully convicted person to date again and I, I went, know. I want to go take this guy out and meet women. I, I'm like, there's this one fucking speed bump in front of him. And that is part of these stories that, A, I had a little tear down my eye. So screw you, Gia. But like, because <laughs> every time I cry in front of my wife, she's like, oh, this is a little softy again. And, uh, but like, it was, it was, I was like, yeah, we don't think about that. We go, what was it like? And I don't mean to be graphic, but what's it like in prison? What's it like in the showers? What's it like at mess? What's it like mm -hmm. with all these things? These are all the sensationalized TV prison break-esque shit that we go, well, that's our version of what prisons must be like. Mm -hmm. But we, you talked about it from a, you know, working your way back into society, finding a job, your family and your friends, like all of these things that like, and, and his age, like he's older, but I mean, his entire life was robbed from him. Mm -hmm. So being into what maybe a younger Jeff would be into is still something old Jeff wants to experience. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. And you know, he, he has no real choice now um, to have kids. Like the options were taken away from him. You know, right. he's like, well, we can't have kids now. Um, you know, he's just older and that is not something he wants to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis now, even if he dated somebody a lot younger than him, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it just, it, it's so many things are taken away. And then people don't also think about what about, it's great that you got to get out. A lot of people don't, a lot of innocent people in prison don't ever get there, you know? So it's great no. that Jeff got to be free, but what about when you are freed? You just walk out of there. You, most of them have lost touch with their families and friends. You don't have a car, you don't have money, you don't have clothes, you don't have toiletries, you don't have, I mean, what are you supposed to do now? Now you're just told into this other world, which is great to be free, but how are you supposed to get a job? How are you supposed to do anything? You have zero experience. You couldn't finish high school. I've seen this movie and uh, Red and Andy Dufresne are in it. It's called Shawshank. And it's very heartbreaking <laughs> watching what happens when prisoners are released back into society because they've become a prison of a system. And 16 years is a long enough time to break a spirit, break a mind, reshape it, um, pre-program it. Like whatever you want to do, you're, you're going to do it. And at such a young age, it's not like he's 30 and he's got a moral mm -hmm. code set. He's 16. Like he's... Mm -hmm he's getting facial hair fuck like i mean there's there's nothing there to support that lifestyle at at all and like you, you yeah. know, i don't know i haven't even fought with anybody now i gotta save my ass in prison like my god man um what was it like did you talk to him about the day he got let out because in the in, in the in the documentary there's this really interesting point where he talks about how his his attorney shows up and he's like i don't want to say i don't know this person because I don't want to screw this up. I was like, smart man, just agree and fucking fake it till you make it. Yeah. And, and that's a life thing you learned real quick, buddy. Good for you. Yeah. So how did his attorney come in a picture, first of all? And like, he, he didn't want to have any conversations about the word freedom or the word release. Because he's like, mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't digest that. That's not a reality for me. So how did this attorney come into the picture that basically saved him and then what was his day out like 
Yeah, I have talked to him about all of those things. And actually the the lawyer, her name's Nina Morrison, and I've interviewed her a few times for the feature doc. And she is like a real life hero. I mean, no joke. I think she, I don't quote me on this because it was in the twenties, but I think she's personally worked on uh, 28 people's cases roughly who've been exonerated. I mean, she's literally a real life hero walking around amongst us. That yeah. um, she, it's so that part that you just mentioned where he says, I was like, where's my visitor? And then I just fade my way through that. Yes, that That is what got me to when I was talking to him. I was like, what? Like, this is so interesting. Just even from a psychological standpoint, yeah. you know, it's so fascinating. Uh, but yeah, so what happened is Jeff had spent, I think he says this in the documentary, he spent four years or so writing letters to just anybody he could think of that he thought okay. could help him. And one of the letters he wrote was to somebody else, I don't know who, but that person, and this is another thing where you never know where one action you take can lead to God knows what, and which I find also fascinating. Um, but he wrote this letter to somebody and whoever that person was saw his letter and thought, I need to send this to this woman, Claudia. And because she might be able to help. And he did that, or she did that. I don't know who that person was. And Claudia got it and then wrote to Jeff and was like, you know, your letter was forwarded to me and whatnot. And I think you should write the Innocence Project based on these facts. Like she actually, look, she works with wrongful convictions and she read up about Jeff and whatnot and then gave him advice. And so Jeff followed her advice and um, he had spoken with Innocence Project once previously years before and they had not taken his case. So he just thought that was a dead end. But I guess Claudia pointed out some real details of why he could reapproach them and he did and they did take his case and that it, nina morrison worked for the innocence project she's the lawyer who ended up showing up that day so once the innocence project started working on it behind the scenes they jeff wasn't always aware of everything that was going on and what ended up happening is they ended up retesting the dna in the rape kit and it ended up having a hit in their database and that's and that hit was to somebody else and that's yeah. how they were 100 percent certain that it wasn't jeff and so they were able to move through his exoneration or releasing him anyways right away very quickly and that's why jeff kind of didn't know what was happening they got this they got no, 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 no. i'm good here just fucking don't don't <laughs> don't get me hopes up uh-huh that's how we felt yeah and so then she showed up to give him the news and that was that conversation that you saw in the that's great yeah because if he hadn't he'd have been like no i don't know this person they would have been like bye bye yeah <laughs> you know? sure. been like, i need to speak to him pronto yeah and i'm his lawyer and he's like I, who is she <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes i know her we're very close friends <laughs> um i wanna i wanna get back to uh you and your story here because i think it's i think it's great that you you like off the bench you, I feel like you're the you're the MMA fighter who gets off the bench, off the couch, no training, walks into the ring, knocks out the champion, and then walks out, and everyone's like, "Who the fuck is this?" Because that is exactly <laughs> like, like I'm I've told everybody about this, and I'm, I'm like, watch this if you can because it's fucking awesome. But are there any similarities that you took from working in business and fashion to working on? film like any any toolbox any tools in the toolbox that that are good for both well for sure all of my photography and videography experience i had prior was shooting fashion videos so at least i knew my way around a camera you know from doing that um, first of all second of all the biggest thing i would say is i spent decades doing marketing and oh. that is half the battle in getting your film out there is marketing yeah. it and you know and so those two things I mean, really, really helped me when switching to filmmaking. I come from a, 
I come from a fan point of view, like a cinephile point of view, not from a business perspective of film. So as I do this more and more, I learn more that you have to write a one page for a film. You have to market it to your investors. You got to sell this as a business idea before you even get to be creative. And, and I've seen some of these and I'm like, man, this is not fun. This is why I'm on the outside. I don't want to be, I don't want to be around all your nonsense paperwork and red tape bullshit that stops from having the fun. But that, that, that would have made it, I would imagine, I guess a less, less daunting because you've got, you, you know, a camera and yeah. you know how to get somebody to invest in an idea. So now it's about what I right idea. Now you can kind of skip the, the, my, my, the stuff I don't like and get right to the meat and potatoes of it. That's yeah. For sure. I think it's, it's so interesting because I worked in the fashion industry for other companies for 15, 16 years. And then I started my own fashion brand, which, you know, I still have today. And I felt like it, it did okay, but I could never really get it to be as successful as I wanted it to be. And it was a real challenge. And I did that for six years. And then I decided to go into filmmaking and I did this and it was like, everything was fast tracked. I was able to, you know, get it off the ground fast. I was able to get it, you know, released quickly. I was able to do the marketing quickly. And I re was like, in my mind, I was like, this is why for six years, I couldn't get, I think this is why I was doing that for six years and I couldn't get it off the ground. But everything that I learned there, I was able to really efficiently apply here and move this thing so much faster than, you know, people always say like, how do you make a film and you within a year you're at this stage you know yeah. I, I get that all the time but I think it is because of all the years of experience of doing all that other stuff I was able to figure out what works what doesn't work what works in marketing what doesn't work and just apply everything that did work to this really quickly right away so it kind of in hindsight looking back before I was really frustrated that I couldn't get my fashion <laughs> business off the ground and now I feel like oh that was only for this like this yeah, was one for sure <laughs> Yeah, that dovetail that shit into another thing, and then you know, off you go. Yeah. Uh, I uh, what what inspired you? Like, wh who inspired you? I should say. Like, do you have a list of documentary filmmakers that you like that you were kind of like in a mold to be like, I'm gonna do a little of this, a little of that, or were you like, I'm just gonna do my own thing, so nobody can say that I was heavily influenced by A, B, or C, so they pay attention instead of you know finding a, a hole to poke. You know, to be honest, I had. I can't even name a single one because I never, ever, ever, ever had a dream of being a filmmaker. I never thought about it. It wasn't even a thing I ever thought I was going to do. It all was that one day at Anand's trial when I saw that camera crew and I was like, wait, I could do this. I just wanted to do something that would help the cause of wrongful convictions. And I thought, well, spreading awareness is what would be the thing I could do. Um, and so I, I can't say that I had any. I've always loved true crime. always loved watching true crime. I'm very opinionated and I'm very black and white. So I definitely know what I love and I hate. So everything I'd ever seen, I knew what I, you know, yeah, really yeah. loved oh. and what I really hated. And so I went in with my own list of things. I hate, hate, hate when documentary filmmakers put themselves in their films. And it's like, it's not about you. Like, why are you in this movie? Like, I, I wondered understand. if I was going to see you or not. I was like, where's, where's that two shot where you're both sitting down talking to each other? And then, uh, I yeah. hate it. It's like, oh, why well, you're not part of the story. Why are you here? <laughs> I completely respect that. I think that's a good idea. Because it's like, we know you. We know you're narrating, right? If if there's a narrator, chances are. If, unless, yeah. unless you've got some bucks and you can afford Morgan Freeman or Sean Penn or some deep voice uh -huh. or, or delicious female voice for that matter, like getting uh, ScarJo to narrate for you, for example, right? Like those, you can do that. But nine times out of 10, like, um, oh, who's... 
fuck, what's his name? He's done, he did the Armstrong lie. Gibney, Alex Gibney. Alex Gibney always narrates his own stuff, but he never puts himself in it. But as soon as I do see a documentary filmmaker and shit, I'm like, man, act if you want to be in the camera, in front of the camera. Yeah. Like, there's, you know, the guy in Tiger King wasn't in front of the camera. And that's a fuck. It was so funny because, story. yes, it is. It is. The, this was a thing about, you know, the jinx. I loved it because they got that thing at the end. Up until that scene at the end, I was kind of like, I don't know if I like this documentary because it was <laughs> constantly the filmmakers. And I was like, why are you here? And I get that they were a part of it because, you know, Robert Durst is a strange character to deal with and stuff, yeah. but it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And, and then the end just made it. And so I loved it anyways. But uh, if it wasn't for that ending, I would probably say I didn't like that documentary, to be honest. I kind of fell into that doc all good things is the is the feature film about it with uh -huh. ryan ryan gosling is in it ryan gosling plays uh yes robert durst's character and it's again based on a true st story but like you said some things may have been changed for you know we're taking creative license here yeah and uh i i just was like this is a crazy story and then when hbo and jinx came out the soundtrack to jinx by the way does it bother you too no, I don't even remember it to be honest. Oh man, it's just it's one I watched the 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 first season of The Sinner on Netflix is all the 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 killing that takes place is all based on a song that starts playing and it makes Jessica Biel just go psycho and stab a guy in the neck on a beach. Um it's I I'm not saying I feel the same way, but that's that intro to that series is just very haunting and very, I get, I get a feeling in my stomach. Cause I guess it's just attached to how crazy weird and sick that guy was. And they, they yeah. paired it auditorily speaking. That's a word. I think it's kind of a word. It, it plays. <laughs> um, but that's how I found out about it. And I was like, Oh, this is the movie that this documentary is about essentially. So I, I came yeah. into it fiction based. And then I was like, Oh, this motherfucker's real. Sign me up. That is so funny because Robert Durst's story and the one, the Cecil hotel one you mentioned earlier, yes. no. both of those are stories I followed when they actually happened. And so they were both people I was aware of. And oh. so when, when the doc came out, I was like, I gotta see this. Cause I read, you know, in the news and stuff about it when, when things were happening in real life. I do. You, I think the, the one that really resonates with wrongful convictions and HBO did a whole series about it. Uh, it's the West Memphis three. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. There there's uh, it's a different name. I can, I can't remember, but it was done in like the, it was done in the nineties when it happened. Yep. And that whole series is about when it happened, them going to jail and then finding out that they might not be uh, guilty of the crime and then a whole nother series came out of that and then it was the wrongful conviction of them which was the the one that bookends the whole series and i think that one in my opinion kind of started to garner some mainstream attention because there's a lot of bands that sang about the west memphis three i think mm -hmm. I know alkaline trio did a lot of um the advocacy work for them and just trying to get the word out there which is how i found out about them but that it's it's i think just to get back to why we like them so much it's also like we're all human right this is something like another human did this it's not like they're you know a superhero or a bad guy or something in a movie that you can kind of write in it's like they're they walked around life they 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 associated with everything and then one day they just went and did this shit and then you kind of look at yourself and you go man am i capable of breaking that bad mm-hmm mm-hmm 
I, but you know, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> What's uh, so give me like your favorite three true crime documentaries that you think people should watch like the, the, the epitome of true crime. Oh, well, making a murder is definitely my top it's up there. It's so amazing that the filmmakers followed and filmed this story for 10 years. Yeah. That's just, yeah, it's, it's great. And then definitely the jinx just because the end is like a filmmaker's dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the third, let me think. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I can't think of a third, really. That's fine. There's so many. If you, if oh, no, yes. Go. Dream Killer. Dream Killer. Is, that one about? I don't even, maybe that's even my number one, actually. Sure. Have you seen that? Oh, no. Oh, you have to see that. This, yeah. this is not only a wrongful conviction, true crime doc, but it is like this heartwarming father-son story. That is like, if, if any, and if everybody had a dad, like the dad in this film the world would be just an amazing place it, it's so good you you gotta watch it so we need to clone the dad from dream killer and jeffrey deskovic because these people are made of something that not all of us are <laughs> yes and and rabia who brought a non-story to serial because yes, if and- everyone had a friend like her again the world would just be a wonderful place yeah start cloning humans again people and use these three people as the mold maybe we can <laughs> yeah. civilization um, I have uh, I have some other questions here that we can play before we go because I'm noticing the time we're getting close. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to keep you for your call. Um, I have uh, a favorite show. Did you ever hear of Inside the Actor Studio from back in the day? Oh yeah, I love that show. Yes. Okay, so you know it. All right. So I do. When I put the Lipton ten in, I wasn't referring to Ice T. I was referring to the ten questions that James Lipton asks all of his nice. guests at the end because he passed away. Now, these are questions. I don't think you can trademark questions. So I've, I've been saying for, for the last two years until someone tells me to shut the fuck up, I'm gonna keep doing it. So we will start with the first one. What is your favorite word, Gia? Yes. <laughs> is it even better when you get somebody to say it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. That's the business side of you. That's the Forbes articles I read. I totally like that. <laughs> Besides no, what's your least favorite word? Um, oh goodness, my least favorite word. I don't think I have one to be honest. No one's ever asked me this before. I don't think I have one. That's okay. We'll come back to it because this is speed round. So first thing that pops in your head, as long as it offends no one, is fine on this show. Okay. <laughs> Uh, what, what, and this, I'm being, you're married, you have a child. So I'm asking what turns you on creatively? Um, well, I mean, in all ways, smart people. Okay. Yeah. You know what? You are who you associate yourself with. So I am only smart because I have smarter friends. Well, same. That could go for all of us, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's when you know that that's, that's like a, that's like a, a, a jailbreak code that's a life hack right you're like yeah, yeah just, just make that's how all the best people have gotten to where they are because they went i hired you because you were smarter than me at something so i'm putting you in charge of this so i don't have to be smart about it yeah and people that are smart enough to know to do that exactly lots of people would just won't and they have hang-ups and whatnot and then it's just a it's self-sabotage when you don't do that <laughs> it was a fucking killer what turns you off creatively 
Uh, toxic people. People will just. Oh, you broke up there. What was that? No, oh, no, I can't lose sound now. Oh, we're freezing. You'll come back shortly. Ladies and gentlemen, we're, uh, we're, we, we love Zoom calls. These are, these are, this is the, my, my most favorite thing about 2021. And 20, oh, she's back. Okay. I was just filling the air again. Okay. So toxic people are, uh, are one of your turnouts. Was there anything else while we froze up? Oh, I was just saying people that make, uh, you know, relationships or any work projects toxic. It just drives me crazy. Fuck you, Joss Whedon. <laughs> That's, she's talking to you, buddy. Pull your pants up. Act like a human. Uh, what sound or noise do you love the most? Oh, my son's laugh. <sighs> Jack's three. Laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the, is that the big belly laugh or is it a giggle? It's a giggle. It's just so cute. I audio record it all the time. I'm like, I gotta <laughs> make this like my phone ring or something. <laughs> you should send it to me and I'll put it somewhere in the show. <laughs> Okay, I'll do that for sure. <laughs> Use it as a sound effect somehow. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? All background noise when I'm trying to work. Ah, so it's got to be silent? Completely. Get it, okay. Completely. I, I do need like, I don't know, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom in the background to get anything done. Like just just something to take short breaks, but that's the ADD in me where I'm like, uh, I need a break. All right, I got more mental capacity. And so many people I know are like that. My husband listens to podcasts while working and while writing, you know, reports for work and whatnot. I get nothing done. And my yeah, mind I, goes like from one to the other to the other and act nothing gets done. I'm not saying I get a lot done or I could get a lot done in <laughs> less more time or let, like get more done in less time had that movie not been on. But uh, I digress. Um, what is your favorite curse word? The F word. I'm Canadian uh, and I have a very foul mouth. And I'm, actually, my son said that today. And I was like, oh my God, I need to do a better job. <laughs> when the child A knows the word and B hears you say it too much. Yeah. That's <laughs> yes, it's a problem. <laughs> uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? You've done fashion, you've done film, anything else? Well, I'll never attempt it, but I, had I wish I would have listened to my parents and been a doctor. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Patch Adams did it at what? 40. We could all, yeah. do it. we're all young. We can get this shit under control. You can be, if you become a doctor, um, I don't know. I owe you something big. Cause you <laughs> checked like three major industrial, like you've checked two boxes that like anybody who can't get off the couch would love to be able to be in. And a third one where you're like, I'm just going to become a doctor. Cause I can't. <laughs> I thought about it earlier this year. <laughs> My God, of course you did. Um, what profession would you not like to do? A lawyer. Uh, yes, lawyer. after watching all of this. Uh, there's one more question here, and I wanted to ask you something now that you brought that up. Before you go, what was your experience just researching the American justice system and how hard or maybe easy it is to navigate and the media just convinces us that it's one big conundrum and it can't be solved like when you were when you were trying to get documents and, and anything that you could get was did, did nina the lawyer have all of that or did you have to start digging from scratch i had to dig from scratch um oh, wow. definitely yeah for a lot of it even um you know jeff obviously gave me a lot but even he didn't he couldn't find the documents anymore because he's been out for uh, I don't even know, 14 years or something like that. So even he didn't have the documents anymore. Uh, so yeah, I had to dig. But uh, the justice system, no, I completely agree with your second statement. It is a complete disaster. And there are the oddest rules and laws and hoops to jump through. And 
you get denied an appeal and you can't have another one for another year. And it's just, it's just the years, I should say, even not just one. It, it's insanity. When the more you dig, the more you're like, how can things be like this? How can this be what the rules and laws are? It's, it's really crazy. From an outsider's perspective who has a lizard brain from time to time, I just think it's one big industry. It's designed to attack a specific race, a specific gender, a specific idea. It's got a profile and it profiles the less fortunate and it's racial and it's ignorant and it's uh, greedy and it preys on lives and it's designed to be such a conundrum so that nobody would ever attempt to fix it because it's too fucking profitable to turn away. That's just my lizard brain speaking. You might have a better idea on that. No, I mean, I can't disagree with anything that you said. The thing about it though is it's all of that and then it's even got all of these, you know, uh, what's the word? All, all the processes and stuff are just, they're just, it needs a rehaul. It just needs a major, major rehaul because all, everything you said is true. But then there's cases like Jeff who doesn't fit that profile and the race and the this and the that. And same with the dream killer story. You know, it's a Caucasian guy, the family's well off. You know, he doesn't necessarily fit into all of those categories but yet they're still stuck in this there's just so many uh, issues you know what i mean like everything you said is true it's definitely uh racial and it's definitely targets people that don't have the money to get the right lawyers to defend themselves i mean that was one of jeff's issues they didn't have money he didn't come for money and so they couldn't hire a lawyer and he got a court appointed lawyer who was terrible and that happens to a lot of people so all the issues you said are true and then there's more piled on top of that <laughs> Shit, Jesus Christ, pile of shit covered in needles and God knows what. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Lady Justice, uh, we need to look under your hood and fix a lot of the problems with your engine. So um, that sounded sexual. Anyways, last question, <laughs> and I will let you go. If an afterlife exists, what would you like to hear your God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome in. <laughs> That's what we all want to hear. <laughs> One of my friends said, the editing suite is right this way, sir. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a much better answer. Right? It's funny because you mentioned when you edit, you had your baby, you had, you know, your soup covered MacBook. Like every editor I know loves a dark room that's like quiet and they're just, you know, left to themselves. And you're like, no, I'm going to change that perception and I'm going to well, be mom editor. I would have liked that very, very much so, <laughs> except for I live in a small New York apartment, A, so yeah. there is no editing suite, and B, uh, in the middle of me, just as I was finishing the short and working on the feature length, the pandemic happened, and all the editing suites we could use all shut down. <laughs> so I was stuck at home, and I was like, what am I going to do, make this film or not make it, you I, know? You know, I, I try to live... Like Jeff did when he was on the basketball court. I try to pretend we're not in a pandemic and this is just a, a hiccup, right? And and I, I sometimes forget because I've been fairly lucky with this whole pandemic to just kind of get through it. It's annoying. I, I, I know we were talking about stuff before and I, my heart goes out to you. Uh, but point of case here is, is I forget that you launched a film, your first film in a fucking pandemic. Congratulations for doing that. <laughs> Because everybody's holding off. You, you, and I'm sure you could have. I'm sure you could have been like, you know what? Give it six months. Give it whatever. Let some time go. But you were like, no, I'm charging hard and getting out of here and putting this out there. So, like, that's pretty That's pretty ballsy. Like, opening a business during COVID, putting a movie up during COVID. Like, these are, yeah. these are two things that everybody was like, don't do it now. 
Yeah. It's, it's so funny though, because that's what you would think. And I thought that, you know, I was, you wouldn't, it's so crazy. You won't believe this, but my premiere in a theater in New York city at the anthology film archives theater, which I was like, my first film is going to, you know, have their theatrical release at this theater. I was so excited. I can't even tell you. Jeff was so excited. Yeah. And then we we had, we got into 11 festivals. We had 11 screenings lined up at theaters. And so I was like, this is going to be the best year ever. Like we're going to travel all over. We got into um, an independent film festival in Cannes. We got in, you know, in a few in New York and in LA and in Canada. And oh. I was like, we're going to travel. And, you know, Jeff was hyped and, yeah. and yeah, of course. And two weeks before the premiere at the New York um, film archives, oh. the pandemic, well, it already started, of course, like the coronavirus had already started, but then two weeks before all theaters got shut down, that was the first notification of like things being shut down. And it was two weeks before. And, you know, of course, no one knew what was going to happen. And so the organizers of the festival, that one wrote to us and said, you know, we're just going to delay it. Don't worry. When they reopen, we're going to do this screening. And everyone thought, you know, it would be a month, two months, three months, four months. And every month they'd be like, we're still doing it. Don't worry. We're just going to just waiting till we can, till we can, till we can. That was, I think, in March of 20, 20 and you know here we are and of course it has yet to happen but I was so disappointed I was so bummed and I was like what horrible luck that I can switch careers and against all odds get a film release get it into all these film festivals and the crazy thing is I didn't know this about festivals and I researched it after and thank god I didn't know ahead of time because I would have been terrified film festivals accept less than one percent of all films that are submitted and so the fact that we got into 11 of them and that's in the one percent i was like i was like what and i was so happy about all that stuff and i was like what are the chances that i switch careers make a film it works out it's a decent film we get into 11 festivals we have all these screenings and every theater across the world gets shut down like what bad luck do i have it was just i couldn't believe of course before i knew you know the the extent of what was about to happen yeah no and right and i was like how could this be happening and about a month later you know after i stopped feeling bad for myself i was like i'm just gonna do other stuff that i can do in the meantime and i'm gonna edit since editing is such a solo job and i can do that at home and uh, the more i got online to take master classes and learn other things that i needed to learn i saw that so many established filmmakers that were in the same position who are normally super busy people with no extra time on their hands um, were doing master classes online because they are also type A personalities. They also needed to spend their time and do something creative. Yeah. And so they started doing all these uh, Zoom calls from home. And I joined, I think about almost 50 Zoom calls in the first few months of the pandemic. Oh. And I met with so many filmmakers from around the world that I would never have been able to meet with had it not been the pandemic because A, they didn't live in my city. B, they wouldn't be available. C, why would they make time for somebody who's never made a film before? And so it really, yeah, it worked out in my favor, oddly enough. I mean, it's only because of all of those Zoom calls with these people who have years, decades of experience that I learn distribution and how to get my film out there and, you know, how, how to do all kinds of other things that I've been able to do in this year. But, you know, I thought it was a horrible thing for this for this one, you know, reason just for my film, I, it's a horrible thing all around. Well, um, but I thought it was detrimental to my film, but it actually didn't end up being that way. You're one talented unicorn. <laughs> like, 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 when you think about it, like you just you just put an entire pitch together why this is a bad idea, and you still did it. So yeah, you're the unicorn 
for sure. But it's like what you said, though. It's like you surround yourself with these people. That's all yeah. they did. You yeah, know? no, I, you, okay. All right, I'll eat my words. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so before we let you go, what what's next for Gia? Is it the feature? Is it something else? What's What's up? Yeah, the feature length doc, uh, Jeff's story is almost finished actually. So I'm hoping to release that this year. And I just started writing uh, my third documentary. So I'm hoping to um, get that one rolling soon. My ultimate goal is to make a documentary about somebody who's wrongfully convicted and currently incarcerated because I want to help somebody um, who yeah. needs it currently. Yeah, no, get in the trenches. I, I yeah, I mean, that's, that mathematically that's the progression of where your stories are taking you right like you've you've t you've told the story of what happens now let's make it happen and yeah. show the world what that is well um you have earned a spot here so anything you do please let me know i'd love to talk to you more about this stuff going forward and uh, from one canadian to another that that, that just makes sense <laughs> oh i would love to and this is such a great conversation it's so awesome Oh, that's, that's every podcast host's best compliment. This is such a great conversation. <laughs> Anyways, um, Gia, send me all your stuff so I can put it on the, on the link. It'll every podcast platform, my website, everything will have everything that people can read about this, read about you, what you've done, what's up. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll plaster the internet and make it a geo week here and uh, let everybody know about it. I, like I, I said earlier, you're trying to find uh, a license for it in Canada, but you can see it if you're American, you can see it on prime south of the border, right? Yep, and shortly, hopefully should be here too. Awesome, I, the more people, everybody needs to see this. It's that kind of story uh, and you're only, it, it's a short, so it's that fucking powerful. So just imagine what the feature holds. Uh, put this in your list of things to watch, ladies and gentlemen, I strongly recommend it. I don't have some sort of award to give, but if I could, I uh, would, it would be tall and made of gold and probably say Oscar on it or something. So um, <laughs> I will, I will take all your information. Anything you want to let anybody know Gia before I let you go? No, I don't think so. But thank you for having me. It was this, so great. Thank you so much. I mean, going from perfect fucking strangers to having a lovely conversation is, is always the end game. So uh, mission accomplished, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I will spare you all the crazy details. Um, I'm just going to, give you the facts now guys realdebaters.ca that's where you can find everything us that's where you can look at us that's where you can talk to us that's where you can donate to the show if you want to help make this thing bigger and better we'll give you credit we'll call you associate producers um what else can you do there? you can shop there you can buy our merch you can we sell skateboards no other podcast that i know of sell skateboards and uh, that's it. So the real debaters.ca. Oh, and yeah, follow us Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at real debaters. That's R E E L for all the spelling. Uh, like I said, you can find all Gia stuff in the episode link, go to our website, real debaters.ca. If you want to learn more about this and find a way to watch the show, I'll put all that up there for you. Um, I, I got, I think, yeah, checklist, got nothing else. Gia, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your evening and uh, we'll be in touch. Yes. Thank you so much. You too. Watch all the movies, kids.